erudite John Ragsdale teaching a course on Matthew and the equally erudite Ed Pratt-Dannels, Dr. Ed Pratt-Dannels, I guess it would be Dr. Ragsdale too, teaching a course on the parables. Today's passage from Matthew 20, which is a parable, fits perfectly into our education process. It also fits perfectly into the context in which it was given by Matthew. For before this parable, Peter is hammering on Jesus to make him the right-hand person in Jesus' camp. He wants some credit for all the work he was doing. At which point Jesus says to him, Peter, the first will be last, and the last will be first. And at the end of this parable as well, the mother of John and James starts to hammer on Jesus too about wanting Jesus to put James and John each at the left hand at the right hand of Jesus' throne. Jesus was trying to explain to them that his throne would not be of gold and pearls, but of wood and nails. It would not take the form of a chair, but of a cross. With those parts on either side, Matthew tells this parable. A parable, by the way, is a story alongside the truth. And it's meant to illuminate the truth, much like art is meant to illuminate the truth. I heard a great definition of art the other day that goes, art is the lie that helps us understand the truth. And in that sense, a parable is uh, art. It is not the factual truth. It is a parabolic truth. And in seeing the truth through this parable alongside the truth, that truth is made more understandable. So may God open up to us an understanding of this word from Jesus. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went out too. And when he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual wage. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, or pal, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. 
Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. This is the word of the Lord. Barbara Brown Taylor said that this parable is a little like cod liver oil. While it's supposed to be good for us, it's hard to swallow. It assaults all our notions about fairness and disrupts those innate scales of justice that we measure life by. The last shall be first. The the first last? I don't get it. While this parable is meant to point to the amazing grace of God that undermines all the ways that we measure ourselves and keep score, for those who work hard and do good and try to be responsible, it just doesn't seem right that God works this way. To pay all the workers the same amount regardless of hours worked, heck of a way to run a railroad A minister friend of mine in North Georgia, while teaching a class on this parable of Jesus, was assaulted by the leading banker in town waiting for him in the hall when the class was over. He challenged him, who gave you the right to teach such subversive socialistic stuff? That's not how the world works. He told my friend, Fred Craddock. Fred responded, Well, maybe you can't run a railroad that way, but this is how God runs his world. And besides, I didn't say it. Jesus did. Look it in the Bible. The thing is, Jesus did say it. According to Matthew, he said it. And he said it to those of us who, like this banker, work hard to get ahead and measure things according to where we are in the lineup, thinking we deserve to get paid in the kingdom of God with coupons in high denominations. The last will be first. Everyone gets the pay paid the same. Not in my world. You see, the truth of this parable is meant for those of us who think for some reason we deserve to be first. Like Israel in Matthew's day who claimed to be the chosen ahead of all the others, the Gentiles, or the elder brother in the prodigal son story, or Peter who thought he should be on the right hand of God, or the mother of James and John who thought her son should be on both hands of Jesus. It is the truth for all who think that we are better because of the color of our skin or our gender, or our IQ, or our sexual persuasion, or how big our house is, or you name it. It is the truth for all who think we are more righteous by reason of our church participation, our denomination, our church attendance, our money given, or the particular doctrine that we claim to believe. And with this truth comes the scandal, for it is a scandal to those of us who think that we should be ahead of the line, of the Jesus line, we should be up front. 
We have our degrees, our titles, our portfolios. We have our social standing and our Puritan work ethic. We are Presbyterians, by the way. And if not that, Episcopalians. And if not that, Methodist. And if not that, Baptist. Or whatever denomination it is, we are. Can't you see it? According to this parable, God is generous and gracious to all us, even the Catholics, even the Anabaptists, even the Mormons, even the agnostics. Because God, this parable says, can do what God chooses to do, and what God chooses to do is to give us what Jesus calls the kingdom of God. This is our reward our currency in the kingdom of God, and it's about love and forgiveness. And it only comes in one denomination, complete, ultimate forgiveness and love. There's no greater bill. It's not something that can be metered out. You can't make any change with it. Either it is fully given or it is not And if this parable is right, it is fully given to all who are invited in, no matter how long they have been there. Now, this parable has mostly mostly been preached, I think, as a story about God's amazing grace. And that it is. God's incredible generosity... And it's preached going like this. The landowner needed more laborers to get his crops in. So he hired some folk early in the morning, and then at 9 he went down needing some more and hired some more, and at noon he did the same, and at 3 he did the same, and then at 5 o'clock he did the same, and they all came up and worked however many hours. And then when it was pay time, he called forth those who had come last, last in, first out, I guess, in accounting terms, those who had come last and handed them their paycheck, and it was a full day's wage. And they were ecstatic, can't beat this. And then those who came next, a full day's wage. Finally, the, those who had started at 7 a.m. were called up, and they get the same amount, a full day's wage. And they start grumbling. This isn't fair. This isn't just. And the theologian says, we are saved by grace through faith, not by works. For those of us who like to be first, this is a sharp reminder that in the kingdom of God, it doesn't matter one whit how much work we do. What matters is how much work God has done. Still unfair. As if we are the judge of fairness and justice. Jesus is the judge of fairness and justice. And in the world he lived in, he smelled a rat. In Jesus' day, there were no social nets, no unemployment insurance, no food stamps, no social security. Those things which some people feel are a disincentive to keep people from working In fact, there are many things that keep people from working, and the primary thing is lack of jobs. In Jesus' day, it was as true as it is now. The fact is that social net or not, 
History is full of unemployment tragedy. Joblessness is not only bad for our economy, it is bad for the one who does not have a job. It is spiritually bad for that one as well as for all of us collectively. Jesus did not have his head in the clouds. He saw the world around him and quite clearly saw the injustices in the market systems that kept those with power in power at the expense of those who had none. He saw clearly those systems, everyone has them, every gender, every, I mean, every age has them, those systems that tend to reward the stockholders and officers, but not necessarily the stakeholders and employees and customers. Understanding that labor systems favored the strong, those first in line, those with the most experience, those willing to give some kickback while leaving everyone else to fend for themselves, Jesus tells this parable not just as a story about God's grace, but also a story about God's justice. In the parable, there were day laborers lined up looking for a job. When I lived in Atlanta, the old Home Depot over where I lived, there would be 100 to 200 Hispanic or Latino men trying to get a job. And every time you drive into the road to get to Home Depot, they would jump up and wave and shout, please hire me, please hire me. And if you had a pickup, it was even worse. And who got hired? The first ones up, the ones who were the right age, not too old or not too young, the ones who looked the strongest, the ones who seemed to be the most industrious, they got hired. Isn't it always the case? It wasn't the choice of those who didn't get hired not to get hired. They tried just as much as others It was torturous for them not to get hired. They sat there all day long waiting for someone to pick them up because their only source of income was the daily wage that they would get to feed themselves or their families. They wanted to work. Not working was more of a pain and price to pay than working itself. Jesus turns the whole power structure of this upside down about power and weakness in the kingdom of God and lets the last and the least and the lost and the little go first when it's time to get paid. This is the truth of the parable that we often miss. The story doesn't say that the landowner went down to hire more people because he knew he couldn't get the harvest in without them. It never says that yet. That's what every sermon I've ever heard on this claims. He needed more people, so he went down and got more. No, the story is clear and insinuates, I think, very clearly that the landowner went down to town five different times for various things, and every time he went by and saw the line of people still there, he drove up to them and said, you won't work, get in the car, and sent them back to his orchard. Again, you won't work, get in the car. The whole point of this was that they needed a job. They needed employment. The whole point of this is they needed a part of the kingdom of God. And the landowner, knowing that, was hospitable and welcoming to them. So much so that when they worked, no matter how long, they received the same reward. God's complete and full love. 
justice or grace. But for those of us who are hard-working folk, it just doesn't seem fair. I hate line breakers. When I was about 12, I was standing in line at the Manor Theater, waiting. I got there early to make sure I got a seat, waiting to go in to see Disney's Snow White. And some big old guy, he was a bully, came and stood right in front of me, broke in line. And so stupid was I at 12 that I made some snide remark, at which point he turns around and throws me on the ground and starts to pound my head against the concrete until a woman jumped in and intervened. But you know what? He got to get back in line where he was when he broke in. That's not fair. And Jesus, in, in, in this story, Jesus doesn't condone breaking in line. Instead, he's way more radical than that. As far as the kingdom of God goes, he has just everyone switch places. Completely turns it upside down. Can you imagine going to Target Midnight on Thanksgiving night, they're, they're going to give 50 uh, televisions away, 40-inch flat-screen TVs away for $150. And if you're at 50 in line, you'll get one. So you get there about 10 o'clock at night, Thanksgiving night, and you wait for the 4 a.m. door opening on Black Friday. You get a little ticket when you get there, and you're number 29, and you know you've got it. You, you know you're going to get one. And then at 4 a.m., the doors open, and the manager comes out with a bullhorn and says, Okay, listen up. Ticket number 296. Ticket number 295. Ticket number 294. Come to the door. You're inside. And what you want to do is riot. You want to riot until the crowd parts like the warders at the touch of God's hand and uproll someone in a wheelchair and uproll's number 289 in a gurney and uproll's 297 in another wheelchair and then here comes someone with a seeing eye dog and then you know you understand how God sees why the last should be first The point is that we are not usually in a position to decide what is fair and just because we see things through our eyes, not through the eyes of God. I was talking to a minister friend of mine many years ago about God's capriciousness, God's seeming way of doing something and not doing something capricious. You just can't understand why God does it. And I was trying to pick his mind about how can God be just? Because life doesn't seem to be at all. This, this was after my own personal tragedy in my family, which only proved the point even more. Why are some people born into the wonderful family and lives they are born into, I ask, while others are born into profound poverty or tragedy or illness? Why do some people seemingly come out on top while others, no matter how hard they try, end up at the bottom? If God is actually just, then why is there so much injustice and suffering in life, I asked. And then he said something to me that I'm still trying to swallow. 
because, because we cannot answer. Our only hope is that God, as we understand God, is not just. Meaning that if God actually does keep score, then who of us will pass the test? The great British writer and theologian G.K. Chesterton wrote perhaps the shortest essay in history. The London Times asked various writers for essays on the topic, What's Wrong with the World? Chesterton replied, Dear Sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. Let's hope God is not too just, at least how we understand it. And our perspective about justice, you see, is always being skewed until we see it through the eyes of God. But not always. In Atlanta, I used to play golf with an elder gentleman who I admired a lot. By the world standards, he had a very successful life. He was worth millions, had a beautiful family, and uh, everyone seemed well and healthy in it. He survived great risks during World War II. At 90, he still had all of his mental and most of his physical faculties, and he loved to give money away. He was one of the great philanthropists in the city. And so I asked him one day, how do, you, how do you account for all this that you have? And he said, well, some of it, hard work and education and discipline. But to tell you the truth, most of it's just luck. It's the only thing I know to put to it is just luck. I was lucky to have the family I was born into. I was lucky to have access to the education I had. I was lucky during the war not to get killed. I've been lucky in business. I am lucky to have the genes I have that take me into old age. I'm lucky. It's all I know to say. And I said, so, and then from that, tell me what, how you live your life. He goes, well, my sense is that it's It's been luck. It's not something I've deserved. And so, therefore, I just try to be grateful for that luck and give some of it back. Really, this is about the best theological response to this question I have heard in a long time. If he had said that it was all God's will or it is all about my hard work, I would have fought him teeth and nail on it. To say much of what happens to us by chance is to say that really we have very little to do with it. Sometimes we have to admit it seems that even God has very little to do with it. If, for say, we are suffering some terrible hardship, we can blame it on God for punishing us or for doing something that we have done to get back at us, that our suffering is deserved. Bad theology, friends. Or when things are going great and we're rolling sevens and elevens, we can say it's, it's all because God is rewarding us for all of our hard work and good, righteous life. Bad theology, friends. Sometimes luck is the only explanation. 
I've got a better word for it. It's mystery. If there is no God, then it, it, it is luck. But if there is a God who is involved in this world in some mysterious way, not pulling every single string and, and le- lever, not causing every single action and reaction, but is involved still in some mysterious way, then the word for it is mystery, a, a mystery of providence for a purpose. God's providential will that no one in the end will be left out of his job, her job, in the kingdom of God. And if this parable is any clue to the mystery of that providence, then God is going to sending, keep sending back his pickup. It's called the church. Us. Down the lines and lines of people who need to know that God loves them unconditionally and for their sake wants them to come to work for the kingdom of God until all the lines are empty and there's no one left standing. When it's pay time and everyone gets rewarded, it's the same amount and we will hopefully all rejoice together unless we still think it's unfair. And then I guess we just go get back in the back of the line, which in God's kingdom may then be the beginning of the line one more time. Friends, the question for us is, where do we stand in the line we stand in now? I mean, if we think we're at the first of the line, we're missing it. It might be that we're not first, In which case, we have a whole lot to be grateful for. A whole lot to be grateful for. And when we understand that gratefulness, our generation will flow down like mighty rivers. Amen.